Uh, so this morning, actually, I've got a little bit more, a little bit more somber of a, of a sermon than that. I want to actually just speak a word of encouragement to you. Yes, you, Harrison, who's standing there just looking at me. I think for many of us, and this includes me, um, you know, Michigan winters can be a little bit rough. I don't know if we've seen the sun a whole lot in the last couple of months. And as I've been meeting with several of you guys over the last few weeks, I know a lot of us have some pretty difficult like family and health and work situations going on. And I suspect that the broader social tension is not going to like dial down this year. So just knowing all that, I, I thought it would be good to just come together. And I want to encourage you this morning that God is with you like in a very personal way, and that God loves us. And that sounds so basic, but that is one of the reasons that we get together as a community, is to remind ourselves that we're not alone and that we're loved. I know after the, over the last few years, Ken and I have talked about various tools that oppressed people and their allies that they use to like persevere and to endure. And that includes things like, we've talked about like throwing parties and having celebrations. And we've talked about lamenting together, and we've talked about meeting together, and we've talked about meditating, right, and just sort of dialing down into the presence of God. And all of those are tools that I think we're going to need in this coming year. And it's in that same spirit that Ken did a couple of sermons on kindness to ourselves over the last um, couple of weeks this month. Because we often talk about justice, right, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, but we don't always talk about what it means to, like, love ourselves in order that we can love our neighbors. And so I'm going to follow up on that, but I'm not going to talk about self-kindness this morning, but I just want to remind us of God's kindness to us. And the story that I want to delve into is from the Gospel of John, and it's a story about a man named Lazarus. So first, just a little bit of background here. Lazarus is a story that we find only in the Gospel of John. And it starts with Jesus receiving word that his dear friend Lazarus is dying. Right, so Jesus is off in a different part of the country than his friend. And Lazarus's two sisters, Mary and Martha, they send a messenger to him. And the messenger tells Jesus, the one you love is sick. And then Jesus responds with saying, this sickness will not end in death. Right, so Jesus' response to the messenger foreshadows um, a miracle that comes later in the story. When Jesus goes to Lazarus, and if you know this story, you probably know it because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Right? So he's saying, this sickness will not end in death. And in the larger narrative of the Gospel of John, most scholars believe that like, this moment is sort of the climax. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's like the climax of John's larger argument that Jesus is like God in the flesh. Right? That the Gospel of John was written so that we would believe this. And then the way that John tells this story, this huge Lazarus miracle is kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back in the larger narrative, right? It's the one that like catalyzed Jesus's enemies to, to kind of procure events that would ultimately lead to Jesus's unjust death, right? So it's like a pivotal story in the narrative. And the story is a significant story, and it's interesting on all of those levels, but today I'm not actually interested in any of those parts of the story. I'm not interested in the miracle. I'm not interested in the consequences of the miracle. I'm not even interested in John's larger narrative. Because I think there's actually a smaller story, another story that's also going on in John chapter 11. And that's what I want to focus on today. It's a story that reveals Jesus' more vulnerable human side and what that means for us. So I want to read the part of the story here where Jesus arrives in Bethany, where Lazarus and Mary and Martha live. And if you didn't pick up, um, I copied off some... John 11th, uh, Steve's got some to pass out to you. Maybe just raise your hand. It looks like Ryan's got some. 
Can't even use one up front. So this is the, the part of the story where Jesus goes to the town of Bethany where Lazarus lived with his sisters, Mary and Martha. So let's just read it. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days already. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, so many of the Jewish people of the region had actually come to Mary and Martha to console them over the loss of their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary was sitting in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will grant you. And Jesus replied, your brother will come back to life again. And Martha said, I know that he'll come back to life again at the resurrection of the last day. So let's just make a note here. In the Abrahamic traditions, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, there's a belief that at some point, all of the dead will rise up into the presence of God. And so that's what Martha is is speaking of here. She says, I know that he'll come back again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And the one who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who comes into the world. And when she had said this, Martha went and she called her sister Mary, saving, saying privately, the teacher is here and is asking for you. So when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still in the place where Martha had come out to meet him. And then the people who were with Mary in the house, consoling her, saw her get up quickly and go out. So they followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And now when Mary came to the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the people who had come with her weeping, he was intensely moved in spirit and greatly distressed. And he asked, where have you laid him? And they replied, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Thus the people who had come to mourn said, look how much he loved him. But some of them said, this is the man who caused the blind man to see. Couldn't he have done something to keep Lazarus from dying? Jesus, intensely moved again, came to the tomb. Right, so this is between the setup, like where Jesus got the message, the one you love is dying. Between that and the actual miracle, this is the story we have. Right? And Jesus here is encountering two grieving women in the wake of losing their brother, someone that Jesus also cares about. So we know from other parts of the gospel as well as from this story, we get a sense of how close that Jesus was right, to Lazarus as well as to his sisters. You might remember the story where Jesus is dining in their home, right? And Mary's like the, the busy hostess, and she got mad at her sister for sitting at the rabbi's feet, right? She was, Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, which is the position taken by a person who's training to be like a rabbi themselves. So Martha's mad that, Jesus, or that Mary is sitting in this rabbi-in-training position rather than serving Jesus' dinner. Right? So Jesus is a spiritual leader, but he's more than that to them. He's actually a really close friend. Right? The one you love is ill. But Jesus didn't rush to Lazarus' side. Right? He waited. And now that he's finally arrived in this really intimate space of grief, each woman has a response for him that just names the depth of their pain. And Martha says it first. You'll see I bolded this in your text. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary shares the same lament when she finds him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then the others who came to grieve and to comfort the sisters had their own version. 
Couldn't he have done something to keep Lazarus from dying? And these are statements of the forsaken, right? These are statements of the hopeless. They come from that place where we go and we are just so heartbroken and so bewildered by life's turn of events that we're like grasping it some way to understand like some cause that could have changed our circumstances or some person to blame but for something that just feels out of our control, right? If, if we hadn't had so much financial stress, maybe our marriage could have survived. If only I had gone to the doctor sooner. Right? She's saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And so Jesus arrives to this persistent question that it's like everybody seems to be asking, why didn't he come sooner? Why didn't he stop this? Where was he? And I want to name that no matter who you are, that's a hard spot to walk into. Right? Can you imagine if you're at work and there's a project that's not gone well and you can tell that all of your colleagues are sort of blaming you, it would be natural to feel you know, defensive. But Jesus doesn't come into that space in a defensive way, like he's kind of reading the room about what's actually going on. He doesn't deflect the hurt. He doesn't try and justify his behavior like, look, I had so much going on. People around here want to kill me. He just doesn't respond with that kind of self-protection. But instead, he just reaches into them with genuine love in their pain. And he recognizes that people in pain do and say a lot of things that are much less about the stated problem and more about them trying to make the pain go away. So what does that look like with Jesus here in his response? And the first thing I notice is that Jesus doesn't prescribe a process for Mary and Martha's pain. Right? He actually responds to their grief, each one of them in a unique way, and he takes their lead on that. Because Martha and Mary, they both start with the same statement, don't they? Lord, if you had been here. But then they take it in two different directions. And Jesus like follows the direction of where they go. Martha wants to have a conversation about hope. And so Jesus meets her there. For her, she follows the, like, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died with, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will grant you. Right now, I don't think she's saying that because she's expecting Jesus to raise her brother from the dead. I think it seems pretty clear later in the story that she's assumed that that's not possible. But what I think she's doing here is naming that she's heartbroken, that her brother has died, but that that fact doesn't undo what she and her sister and her brother have all come to believe and be passionate about, which is participating in this like inbreaking of God's benevolent way that Jesus seems to be bringing through his life and teaching. Right, so even if she grieves that Jesus couldn't or wouldn't stop this scenario from playing out the way that it did, it hasn't shaken her conviction that he is the sent one, right, that he's one that moves with a divine authority. She still believes Jesus is connected to something beyond, and that for her is a source of hope even in the face of her grief. And she needs that. Right? So she's reaching out to Jesus, like pleading for this assurance that her hope isn't misplaced. And that's where Jesus meets her. And he encourages her with his own hopeful words that are rooted in his faith. Your brother will come back to life again. And we see with Martha's answer, she assumes that he's talking about like life in the future. Okay, yeah, yeah, he'll come back. But Jesus seems to correct her. And he calls her to trust that in his very self right now is a life that can endure. That in him somehow resurrection can break through even death. Right, that life in the midst of loss, that that's available to everybody who put their trust in him, even if there isn't like a happy miracle at the end of your story, that there's something about being able to put our trust in Jesus that is life-giving. And he uses a word when he speaks to her. The Greek is pastiwo. 
And it's often translated as believe, which makes it sound a little bit cerebral. But it actually means to trust, to like actively entrust oneself to. And so what Jesus is doing is he's meeting Martha's questions with assurance that she can trust him and that that trust has meaning. Right? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who trusts in me will live even if he dies. And the one who lives and trusts in me will never die. Do you trust this? And Martha responds, yes. And then she gives a declaration of faith in who Jesus is, even in the wake of her disappointment. I trust that you're the Christ, the Son of God who comes into the world. I trust that you're the Messiah. And that even if things don't look like what I hope they would look like, I still trust that you're God and that God is with us. So in the wake of that loss and her unresolved questions, Martha is looking for this hope that's beyond these present circumstances. And Jesus is there to meet her in that place. Bless you. And I think how many of us have had a point like that in our lives? You know, like where things just aren't going quite as we hoped or as we planned for them to go, but we make this kind of small confession to ourselves. I know I've done this several times. God, please tell me that you're there, that you can at least see my pain because I I need to know if you're here. I need to know if you can see this. And I know when I've been in that place, I feel like Jesus has met me in that space, right? Either with a feeling of comfort or peace or maybe sometimes it's through the kind words or actions of a friend. Sometimes we need God to meet us with hope. And sometimes we don't. As we've seen in other stories, Martha and Mary are not the same. Mary does not eagerly rush out to see Jesus seeking some kind of spiritual solace, right? Mary's the one, she's like, she's like so deep in her feelings right now. So when her sister tells her that the rabbi is waiting for her, Mary just, she runs out there and she approaches him in a pool of tears at his feet. She's just falling apart and she's wailing, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, period, right? There's no but I still trust in you, right? There's no declaration of faith. It's just the disappointment and it's the heartbreak because Mary is in that place of raw desolation and Jesus doesn't try to talk her out of it, right? He just sits with her in that. But he does more than even just sit and stand as witness to Mary's pain. He does something else that's also important. He allows himself to feel Mary's pain, right? So he actually enters into her helplessness and her vulnerability. It's like Jesus does seem to know what's coming, right? And he knows that this moment of loss is not the last moment, but that doesn't stop him. Like even knowing what's coming ahead, that doesn't stop him from inhabiting that moment of pure grief fully with her, right? So in this wake of like Mary's emotional display, Jesus shows two strong emotions himself. First, he shows indignant anger, Right, so the New English translation of the Bible, which is what I gave you guys, it translates the Greek word that's, that's used there as intensely moved. You see, Jesus was intensely moved. But that doesn't give quite the full weight of the feeling. The, the word generally refers more to like outrage, to anger. It's literally like an anger that makes you snort with fury, which I tried a few times at home and I couldn't quite get it to a place where I felt comfortable to try. <laughs> right, but it's just, strong, strong feeling. It's a, ah. And the second emotion we see Jesus have is when he approaches the tomb itself, he weeps, right? He joins the company of everybody who's been shedding tears for days, and he joins Mary wailing at his feet, and he's overcome with this grief also. So I listened to a, a podcast where Wes Moore was interviewed recently. He's an author and an activist, 
And he was describing the difference between sympathetic love and empathetic love. And I found, this, I found his way of describing this helpful because it illuminates what I think Jesus is doing here. He said, sympathetic love is a love where you're basically saying, I'm doing this because I feel bad for you. But an empathetic love is, I do this because your pain is also mine. I do this because your pain is also mine. So empathetic love isn't an easy love. It's a costly love. It's a love that hurts when we enter into someone else's emotional landscape. But that choice to hurt with has power. Right? It can be really transformative and really meaningful to receive if you're on the other side of it. And this is a choice that I think that Jesus is making at the tomb. Right? Jesus is led by Mary into this desolation of human vulnerability, right? this grief with no consolation, and he's willing to just sit in that desolation with her and weep. And then he snorts at the injustice of it all. Like He encounters the loss and meets it with real empathy. Now, I know some of us have like an overabundance of empathy. And you can't just go around feeling everybody's pain all the time like it's your own, right? But I don't think that's what this story is asking us to do. I think that is a gift that we can give to each other, right? When it's appropriate and knowing how much that we can carry. But I think more importantly, what this story is telling us is that God has empathy for us. And I'd be a rich woman if I had a dime for every time somebody said, you know, I've got this thing going on in my life, but there's so many people who have it so much worse than me that I hate to complain. We will almost always be able to think of somebody who has things worse than us, but that doesn't invalidate our pain or our anxiety or our exhaustion. And I think there are times when we want God or our friends to speak a word of hope to us. Like, we need that. It's going to be okay. You'll get another job. It'll come. You're going to find somebody amazing to date. Right, that's helpful sometimes. And I think that we can ask Jesus to speak that kind of hope to us. But I think it's also important to remember that Jesus meets us wherever we're at. Like, even if it's like in the middle of an IEP meeting that feels like your kid just isn't getting what they need and you're so super frustrated that Jesus is there with you, feeling that frustration with you. Or in that meeting with the district manager who just berates absolutely everybody. Sitting in the doctor's office with aging parents. You know, I'm sure I've shared this several times over the years. I had, a, I had a really pivotal moment in my own life or spiritual walk. It's probably 15 years ago now, where I was really wrestling with um, how there were so many injustices in the world, and I was feeling really angry with God. Like, if there's a God, like, ugh, I'm so mad. And I was just carrying this anger around with me. And I remember I was in the kitchen, and I, I bent down to get, like, a cookie sheet out from under the oven. Um, And I remember just out of the blue, hearing this like little voice in my head that said, instead of being angry at me, why don't you try being angry with me? And that like totally changed my entire outlook. Because it's like how God is empathetic by entering into our pain with us. Even if God knows the outcome, even if there's all these things, that God is still with us, loving us in that, that we can also enter sometimes into the feelings of God. That there's an actual relationship there. And it felt like an invitation to like, I'm angry at all these injustices. Well, if you enter this with me, that might actually be like catalytic for transformation. And I think that's what we see here at the end of the passage that we read, right? It's Jesus is snorted with anger, not just once, but twice. He like snorts with anger as he walks to the tomb. And yeah, he performs an amazing miracle. But I think today I just want to like end the study there by pointing out that it's Jesus' snorting anger that actually compels the action in the story. 
Right? His miraculous action is catalyzed by this empathetic love that he has, and that Jesus' heart heaves with us, and that that sort of heaving, empathetic love has the power to bring the deliverance and the healing into the world. And so with that, we're going to go into our meditation time. I'm going to do something a little bit different. So if, if this is your first time here or one of your first times, we often do two or three minutes of either just silence together or sometimes a guided meditation. People and baby make noise. Don't mind a little bit of noise. But I think this morning, I, I want us to just maybe sit and ask, um, ask God, however you imagine God, that in some areas of pain in your life, like how could God support your process? Maybe you could think about that. And then if you're needing maybe some words of encouragement or hope, to ask the Spirit to speak those to you. Or if you're needing an empathetic love of a God who's maybe just there, that tends to be more my fallback. It's like, I don't want you telling me anything. I just want you here. And then maybe we can just sit and make some space for the divine to move however the divine might want to today. Get comfortable, and we'll just say, Holy Spirit, we know you're here, and we welcome your presence. And we just invite you into those places of anxiety and tension and pain. Um, and we just ask for your support, however it is that we individually need to experience you this morning.